welcome, friends, to the final chapter. At this point, I'm sure you must be wondering, how does it all end? And I wouldn't blame you. If you recall, when we last left off, Yel Gracie, the patriarch of the family, passed peacefully, surrounded by his loving family, both of blood and bond, leaving the two sisters, Martha and Sophia, with a large estate and an even larger legacy to maintain. And so time marches on and the clock plods away at its quiet purpose. To what end? Will the long-forgotten sins of the father now be visited upon the children? Is there some faint, glimmering beam of hope for this family? Or is the only destination, the only possible outcome, grim? At last, like a miraculous sunset, melancholic and inevitable in its beauty, we reach the twilight of the Gracie family. Indeed, as Sophia had married into the Hightower name, by the autumn of 1833, it was only Martha, deep in her grief, who carried the Gracie name. After a period of mourning, Martha took it upon herself to embrace a change of scenery, and in September of 1834, packed her bags to head up north to her ancestral home on the Hudson, to be with her sister as Sophia readied herself to welcome the first of the Hightower heirs into the world. Harrison III. As Harry was often traveling between Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and New York, working tirelessly on the expanding reach of the Hightower dynasty, which had grown even greater after absorbing the many assets remaining of Gracie shipping and trading, the sisters found it would be best to remain there along the Hudson. As dear a friend as ever, Leota stayed in New Orleans, keeping watch over the house along with her remaining siblings, Anya and Stefan. While I desire nothing more than to see your face in the doorway once more, please do not return too hastily. You mustn't worry about the house, for I feel I am likely as attached to this place as I imagine you are. We grew up beneath its willows together, became women in its corridors. Its shade gives me peace, its warmth a sure step. I promise to you to keep these halls safe, whatever the cost, and as long as I am able. Leota Zarkov, 1836. This message of assurance was well met by Martha and well timed, for at a Manhattan salon shortly after, Martha met a man who would change everything in her life. Henry Ravenswood was a magnate and owner of several mines across the Western Territories, most notably in his hometown of Thunder Mesa. He had recently arrived in New York for business with none other than that of Harrison Hightower II. He was tall, gaunt, and had a looming presence about him that followed like that of a dark cloud. He was soft-spoken and mild-mannered, but many would often note a wild look deep within his eyes. Many took this for anxiety or eccentricity, seldom few knew better. To Martha, however, he was suave, attentive, and a mental equal. In short, everything she had long sought for in a mate. What came next was two years of love letters back and forth from the far west, long visits to the city on <laughs> fictional business pretenses, and the soft whispers of secret affections in the dim glow of candlelit libraries. 
While many in the years that followed questioned the man's intentions, the correspondence between the two, if nothing else, paints a vivid portrait of a man so deeply in love, the only other word that could compare would be obsession. My beloved friend, the most wonderful thing has happened. Last night, I was escorted by Henry to a reception for the new Russian ambassador who had come to New York, the Baron Alexander Nitrikov. The event was held by one of Sophie's society friends, the Ballards, so I'm sure you know the kind of spectacle that laid in store for us. Would you believe they arranged for the famed soprano Harriet Elda to sing God Save the Tsar upon the Baron's arrival? You should have seen the Baron's face when he walked in and saw her. I honestly think the man fell in love right then and there. <laughs> the night felt magical. Henry and I danced for what felt like an eternity, but not once did I feel tired. I felt so at home, so utterly complete in his arms, but he had more important things to ask me that evening. Later on, he took me in front of the entire room and professed his love for me. I'd never seen him so nervous and excited. That's when he got down on his knee and asked me to be his wife, Leota, my sweet and most cherished friend. This is what all of those many fairy tales you read to us growing up were about. This miraculous and wonderful feeling. And I owe all this to you, my beautiful sister. Thank you for pulling me from my dreary melancholy and urging me to come here to find my happiness. It's always been you who have been there to help me and to guide me. Now, I need you by my side once more. Come to me, my beloved friend. Come and hold my hand as I bid farewell to maidenhood. With love, Martha. My beloved, on the morrow, I shall be taking passage on the ship, the SS Columbia to come to you and pour on you all the tenderness and affections I can, that we might celebrate this joyous time. It fills my heart to know you are so happy. It's all I ever wanted for you. Yours forever, Leota. In March of 1838, the Hightowers welcomed their second son, George, into the world. And then, in August, Martha and Henry Ravenswood were bonded in holy matrimony. It was a joyous event attended by all manner of high society of the day. Though they were unaware of it, this also marked the final time Martha and Leota would meet in this life. For after the wedding, Henry would abscond with his new bride to a beautiful new home he had built just for her, overlooking his empire in Thunder Mesa. Henry would unfurl every comfort upon his wife and hired a full staff for their manor to wait upon her every need. Around this time, Henry became greatly possessive of Martha and she was seldom ever seen outside of the manor grounds. The few times she was able to venture down into the town, Henry was quick to give chase and draw her back to the house, after which he would lay his wrath out upon the people of the town and the workers of his mine. In 1841, the cold of Ravenswood Manor would be replaced by the warmth of a child. 
Melanie was the firstborn daughter of Henry and Martha, and for a time, her presence brought a docile exuberance to the new father and keeper of Thunder Mesa. He was kinder, more patient, and always wore a smile when his child was near. Meanwhile, Martha grew more and more despondent. Resigning herself to the darkness of their library, she would sometimes stare out the window overlooking the town for hours on end. She began to take on the grim, gaunt appearance of her husband and would not so much as look at her infant, leaving young Melanie to be principally raised by her governess. Martha would pass in 1847 while trying to deliver their second child, though both were lost despite the best efforts of the town doctor. A member of the staff at the time recounted the day in their journal. The moment Mr. Ravenswood realized that he had lost both his wife and the son, a terrifying rage overcame him. I'd never seen anything quite like it. He lunged at the doctor and beat him within an inch of his life. It took almost eight men to pry him away. And then the wailing set in. Those horrible, horrible wails of agony. Katie Riley, 1847. The next 20 years would pass quickly, but with no reprieve of grief. An earthquake in 1860 would take the life of Henry and most of the town of Thunder Mesa with him. Uh, for more information on that, read T. Baxter's Big Thunder, American Enterprise in the Wild West, specifically Chapter 11, The Blunder at Thunder Mesa. His daughter Melanie would attempt to use the newfound freedom from her domineering father to at long last marry her childhood sweetheart, a minor by the name of Jacob Evans. The affair would end tragically when Evans mysteriously disappeared the day of their wedding. Melanie never left the manor after that night, and the staff was slowly reduced one by one over the months and years that followed until she alone inhabited the house. No one knows when she passed, but the house stands vacant to this day, though it has since been protected as a historical landmark. Over 100 years after the incident in 1979, an archaeological dig not two miles from the estate would find the remains of a man estimated to be from the same time period of Evans' exact height and frame. He was still wearing his nuptial suit. Not long after the unpleasantness in Thunder Mesa came the war, horrible and swift. Harry dedicated 100% of the Hightower Industrial Empire to help arm the Northern armies and kept a steadfast correspondence with President Lincoln himself to ensure that as many needs as possible were met. Harrison III, now a brash and arrogant young man, did not see any action during the whole of the war, mainly due to the fact that he spent its entirety in Europe first at university in Oxford, and then in Italy, wooing the famed socialite and heiress, Donabella Ricci. Eventually, she would give in to his lavish advances and take her place as his wife, the first of eight. George Hightower, however, answered the call to duty and joined up with the 17th New York Infantry. At the Battle of Chancellorville in 1863, he would be shot in the left leg and fall from his horse mid-stride, shattering his femur. Miraculously, he would survive, remaining in hospital care for the remainder of the war 
and would develop a limp that he would carry for the rest of his life. He was honorably discharged in July of 1865 as a first lieutenant. Shortly after the end of the war, the Hightowers decided to make the permanent move back down to New Orleans. Loyal as ever, Leota had kept the house safe and untouched throughout the interceding years, principally by setting booby traps around the grounds and circulating tales in town of specters and evil spirits that stalk the property. The old house on the Hudson was packed up one final time and promptly sold off to a distant cousin from the Dread family. Many years later, in 1927, after an ownership dispute following the death of Wall Street mogul Jacob Dredd, the house would burn to the ground. From New Orleans, Harry would oversee the many facets of the company's incoming goods from around the world, while his young new chief operating officer, Barnabas T. Bullion, oversaw much of the work done up north in the mills and iron foundries. Sadly, an unexpected bout of pneumonia would take Harry in the winter of 1866, putting the entirety of the robust Hightower industry into the covetous hands of Harrison Hightower III. To the surprise of everyone, however, Harrison took to the role much as a fish to water. He was decisive, direct, aggressive, and the board of trustees loved him for it, as did his new business partner, the young Mr. Bullion. The following year, George Hightower was wed to Sarah Lydecker, a young woman he had met while studying at Harvard back before the war. Upon her arrival at the New Orleans estate, it was said that she brought a light into the home the likes of which had not been seen in decades. She was loyal, virtuous, a kindred spirit to her new mother-in-law, Sophia, and the ideal mistress to old Gracie Manor. As George toiled away practicing law, Sarah worked tirelessly to make the mansion a home again. She added several new paintings from the finest artists, and even remodeled a long, unused room especially for Leota to conduct her seances. At nearly 70 years old, Leota still held a vibrant spark of life in her and spent much of her twilight years alongside her dear old friend Sophia as they quietly sipped juleps and talked of times gone by. And so, comfortably and serenely, the years passed by in New Orleans until around 1875 when the family began its final spiral. Sophia would pass peacefully in her sleep that winter of 75, and would be interred with her husband in the family crypt on the grounds only a few feet from her mother and father. Though her son and his bride would mourn, it was truly Leota who took her loss the greatest. She would spend days in her seance room, trying to commune with both Sophia and Martha, sustained by meals brought to her by an ever-supportive Sarah. As he had no interest in living the sedimentary life of his father, Harrison III left the New Orleans manor house to be kept by his younger brother. In a letter to George from shortly after his mother's death, Harrison wrote, I abhor the South and have no time to keep a house of my own, even if it was just to be taken in my next divorce. He was not in attendance at his mother's funeral, and did in fact divorce his fourth wife, April de Winter, later that year. In an effort to take their place in New Orleans high society and to return some happiness to their home, George and Sarah began to hold a series of galas and balls at the house, starting with a grand Mardi Gras masquerade. This was a pivotal night, for it was the night one Constance Hatchaway, 
first came to Gracie Manor. Hatchaway was a coquettish socialite, famed for her unearthly beauty and dreadful luck as she was two times a widow. She quickly became close friends with Sarah through these social events, and often came to the manor for visits and to take Sarah along for shopping sprees in town. Sadly, and for unknown reasons, in late 1875, Sarah began to fall terribly ill, withering away until where once was a joyful and generous pillar of the community full of life was only a frail, emaciated woman who could hardly speak, much less get out of bed. George stayed by her side through her illness, seeking answers from any and every doctor he could find. Meanwhile, Constance took gentle care of her dear friend, trying to bring her back to health. Alas, despite their best efforts, they could not ward off the seemingly transfixed clutches of death from sweet Sarah. As with his mother less than a year prior, George laid his wife to rest in the private burial grounds. He was a shattered man, stricken with grief. Attempting to heal his broken heart and perhaps honor her fallen friend, Constance became a constant companion to Hightower. Often she would almost act as the substitute mistress of the manor herself, working to make the house the ideal place for George's healing, though not everyone accepted her presence with quiet ease. I had spent much of the day reading different literature and consulting my tarot cards when all of the sudden I heard a strange noise coming from what sounded to be George's study. I found this odd. He had left early that morning for a case in St. James, and I was not expecting him to be home for quite a while yet. As I made my way down the hall, I could hear someone moving things around as if they were rifling through the drawers and bookcases. As I reached the door, it flew open, revealing that Hatchaway woman. She quickly explained that George had offered to lend her one of his mystery books the night prior, and she had come to retrieve it. Upon finding that he was not home, and not wanting to disturb me, she took it upon herself to fetch it on her own, and just quickly as she appeared, she winced a churlish smile and set off down the hall and out the door. After she was gone, I hurriedly went back to the study. Everything appeared intact save for one small book that appeared out of place. Upon closer inspection, it appeared to be an old journal of Master Yale's back when I was just a girl. This surely couldn't be what she was looking for. It had to be an accident. Perhaps she was telling the truth and simply fetching the book. Even still, I cannot help but sense something in that woman, though what I cannot say. When I found her, we both stood there for a moment, shocked to see the other, her eyes wide, her mouth aghast. Just for a moment, I saw something in her eyes, her expression, a harsh darkness, cutting and cold, the like of which I had never seen before. 
It was almost like she was another person entirely. Then, within an instant, the facade was back, cool and demure as ever. I know George has suffered greatly these past months, but I do not trust that woman, and I doubt I ever will. I have consulted my cards, and no matter how many ways I ask, the only future I can see ends in oblivion. Leota Zarkov, 1876. Over the months that followed, Leota's resentment of the young woman grew, and she would bicker incessantly any time Constance would try and make a change to the house. One night, after an especially bad row, Constance requested to have a private talk to try and clear the air. According to Constance's account, the old woman could not be reasoned with and stormed out. Leota was never seen again. As such, her seance parlor was permanently locked, never to be open again. Shortly after Leota's departure, a romance began to blossom between George and Constance. They would be wed in the spring of 1877. It was the biggest wedding New Orleans had ever seen. After a long honeymoon in the Far East, the newlyweds came home to Gracie Mansion with a blissful excitement for their future together, leading New Orleans society towards the new approaching century. Constance was famed for the ball she would host, opulent and decadent in every possible meaning of the word. In 1879, Harrison III would at long last come to Gracie Manor to hold an annual meeting of a society group he was part of, though not much is known about the nature of that meeting. Years later, he would recount his one and only encounter with his new sister-in-law in a memoir. I had never met such a woman as could both delight my eyes and terrify me to my core at the same time. To all of New Orleans, it seemed that the bad luck beauty had finally beaten the odds. Then, one night, that luck ran out. New Orleans authorities rushed to the mansion the evening of June the 6th, 1880, to find Constance wailing as she clutched her husband's crumpled body. The assailant had broken in and brutally attacked him with a woodcutter's axe, striking Hightower several times in the head before absconding with some of the Mistress Hightower's jewelry and vanishing into the night. News reports would circulate the next day in a mad frenzy, calling it a nightmarish tragedy, the most sensational horror to ever happen, and yet another sign of the decay of modern humanity. As thousands flocked to George Hightower's funeral, police scoured the estate and surrounding area looking for any clue that could lead to an arrest. Finally, a breakthrough came in the form of a diamond earring on the floor of the servants' quarters. It was quickly identified as one of Constance's missing jewels, and the authorities leapt into action to gather the staff for questioning. All were soon accounted for, with one exception, a young man by the name of Paul Geller. At that point, it seemed all of Louisiana had descended into a state of mass hysteria as an all-out manhunt began to find the killer. Days went by, and at last, amongst the willows and oaks deep in the darkest corner of the blue bayou, the murderer was found dangling from the end of a taut rope. At the base of the tree sat a satchel containing the final confirmation, the missing jewelry, and an unfinished note. 
the only words on the page read, A way out. Those few days, what locals would later refer to as the sensational week, changed the Widow Hightower. She became dour, tight-fisted, and according to many accounts, outright cruel. No longer were there any parties, guests were turned away, and investments the family had made in the community vanished. Out of respect, Harrison placed his sister-in-law onto a generous stipend from the Hightower Company to ensure she would be kept in comfort for the rest of her days. Despite this kindness, he kept his distance and never returned to New Orleans. Several years later, despite surviving his many expeditions around the world, from the Amazon to Mount Everest, Harrison Hightower III would meet his end when a faulty elevator malfunctioned at his own New York hotel. Years passed by as the weeds began to creep up and slowly devour the estate in New Orleans. Constance retained her beauty, but slowly, inevitably, time began to leave its telltale marks on her. A staunch recluse, she would wander the halls, delicately gliding along with the aid of her cane. The morning of August the 9th, 1919, the butler, a man by the name of Ramsley, could not find the Widow Hightower in her usual place. He searched the gardens, the music room, the library, but all to no avail. Finally, when he entered the portrait gallery, he found her body. She was lying on the floor in the front of the doorway to a room he had never seen before. Upon further inspection, it was revealed to be the old seance parlor the widow had boarded up decades prior. Rigor mortis had already set in by the time he had found her, freezing her face in a terrified scream. An autopsy would rule her death as the result of a heart attack brought on by something that must have given her a great fright, though it was never discovered what the cause of that fright may have been. After her funeral, the mansion was abandoned and quickly fell into disrepair. It stayed that way until 1960, when a community revitalization committee decreed it as a historical landmark and began restorations. And this hour of the Wally Ryman Show is brought to you by Duke's Cafe. Duke's, the perfect place to start your days with a plate of eggs and fresh beignets. For our next segment, we're talking about the old Gracie estate. You may be familiar with it. Heck, one fella I grew up with used to tell tale of a ghostly buccaneer that would roam the grounds late at night. I never saw such a thing myself, but boy, did it stir the collective imaginations of every kid on our block. Now, as some of you may know, an initiative has just been approved by our fair city to restore the house to its former glory. Here with us today is Miss Molly Anderson. At 60 years young, she was one of the last people in the house while it was in operation. So we've invited her here today to talk about her time there and, well, what it was like back in the day. Welcome to our show today, Miss Anderson. Great to have you on. Hello, and hello to you out there listening. Now, you were there when the house was closed up, yes? Yes, as I recall, it was August of 1919. I was just a girl at the time. My pa had died in the war, you see, so it was up to me to bring home money for the family. Ma was home with the little ones. There was five of us. A lot of mouths to feed. I'm sure, I'm sure. 
Now, what was the house like in those days? Was there much staff? No, no, not at all. Just a handful of us. Many people think the house was in its glory until it was closed up, but that wasn't quite the case. Even then, it was starting to show its age if you knew where to look. And the family that lived there, what were they like? I can't say. By the time I come around, there was just one of them left. Cold type, you know. She was very stern, but she was also very solitary. Now, a lot of us younger folks, we all grew up hearing ghost stories, kind of old wives' tales. Oh, sure, sure. About the house and the odd goings on there. Did anything like that happen to you while you were working there? Anything like that? Yes, uh, anything of the sort. Well, I tell you, I never had anything strange happen to me. That is until I reckon it was the day Miss Constance was buried. We had to go through and collect things, items that were being willed away to folk. Mr. Ramsley, he was head of staff in those days, he had told me to go and fetch some things that were up in the attic. Might have been a painting or something, I don't quite recall. But I do remember walking up that hallway towards the attic door. I'll never forget it. I saw the door there, standing open, and the stairs leading up. Then, all of a sudden, I felt this appalling cold come upon me. And the door to the attic slammed shut, all on its own. I tried pulling it open, but it just wouldn't budge. And it took a maintenance man with a crowbar to pry it open. When I finally got up there, I got what was needed and left, and quick as I could. But the whole time, I couldn't shake the feeling someone was watching me, and they didn't want me there. Fresh out of high school, my grandfather worked as an apprentice carpenter on the site. The process was long, and there were many strange occurrences as the house was returned to its former glory, but it was finally completed, almost 50 years to the day after the widow's passing. Over the many years of work, my grandfather developed a great fondness for the property, and a day after the house was open to the public, he became the caretaker of the estate, a position he held with pride for 46 years. I moved away from New Orleans after college. I thought I would try to get out in the world and figure out what my life was supposed to be about. That didn't happen, but I did find a job working as a reporter. I remember shortly after when I got the call saying that my grandfather had been diagnosed. Every now and then I'd get to talk to him. We'd hit all of our beats. I'm a reporter, Grandpa. I'm living in New York now, Grandpa. Mary and I didn't work out, Grandpa. Then I'd get the same three preset stories, and then we'd him and haw till one of us got the nerve to hang up. Then one day the call stopped. Then it was updates. He's really struggling lately. He seems to be improving. This is probably it. It was probably it so many times that when the time came and it really was it, I didn't even know how to feel anymore. All I knew was I would have given anything in that moment to tell him I was a reporter just one more time. A few days later, I was in a receiving line. Condolences were given, eulogies were read. 
Eventually I found myself at a table listening to a will, and not long after that, I was walking into my grandfather's home as its new owner. After a bit of time and some convincing from my mom, I decided to keep the house because frankly, I, I was probably never going to be able to afford one on my own anyway. <laughs> that was almost two years ago. It wasn't too hard settling in. The house was already nicely furnished, if a little dated. In many ways, it was like a time capsule, though not intentionally preserved. More like a place where time decided it was just no longer needed. He and my grandmother purchased the house back in the late 70s, and all the appliances were original. Old, but reliable, and draped in the burnt oranges and olive greens that have since become so indicative of that era. There was one piece of furniture that was significantly out of place, though. An old mahogany writing desk. Back when the Historical Society needed more funds to help in Gracie Manor's restoration, they auctioned off a select number of pieces from the attic, including this desk. It was damaged and in poor condition, so my grandfather bought it for a song. He spent the summer of 65 restoring it, and when my grandparents got married in 66, it was the first piece of furniture in their little apartment. Where the rest of this house subsisted on wicker and shag carpet, this piece was carefully crafted with mother-of-pearl inlays, brass mounts, detailed reliefs, and each side of the desk was flanked by fluted legs with metal claw and ball feet. It was a piece entirely out of time. Perhaps that's why I was so drawn to it. A few months after I had moved in, I had set up shop at the desk and was plugging away on a puff piece for work. It was early in the morning and I hadn't made my cup of coffee yet. That's the only reason I can think of why I so clumsily knocked my phone off the desk. As I crouched down to pick it up, I noticed the peculiar thing. One claw on the right leg protruded out much further than all the others. I pressed it and the claw seemed to have some give, but nothing happened. I decided to try the opposite next and lift the claw. Slowly it rose as I heard the deep groan of a long dormant spring awakening from its slumber, and then suddenly, a click. In an instant, a compartment dropped open from the bottom of the desk and a book slid out, landing on the floor with a dusty thud. The book was old, leather-bound, and had a metal lock on the side. The key, I can only assume, was lost to history. However, the leather around the lock was brittle and rotted and quickly gave way to the slightest pressure. I was in. To my beloved wife, Connie, may this diary provide hours of amusement and quiet reflection for many years to come. With this humble wedding gift, I vow to serve and honor you all of my days. Your Ambrose, February 18th, 1869. I sat back in my chair, astounded. In my hands, I held the diary of Constance Hatchaway. What secrets did it hold to be kept in such an unassuming place? A lock? A secret compartment? Hurriedly, I flipped to the final entry. It was dated just a few days after the Hightower murder. June the 9th, 1880. George's funeral could not have gone better. It felt like the entire city had come to pay their respects to the old buffoon. Telegrams have flooded in from all corners of the country, from businessmen and politicians alike, 
all offering condolences, thinking I am some poor, grieving bride. As they should. I've come to play the part so well. I wailed and wept for them as I sat in my pew today. The perfect portrait of a devoted wife. Aching pain to face a world without my beloved husband cocooned in my many layers of black crepe. I looked stunning. Before leaving for the affair this morning, I made sure to place the earring in the servants' quarters. Naturally, it was found by the time I returned home. I'm meeting Paul tonight for our rendezvous. I've told him it's finally time for us to run away together. I'll bring the jewels and we'll live like royalty. Somewhere they can never find us. <laughs> Poor simple Paul. I'll have the chloroform on hand so he shouldn't feel a thing. If everything works out, and it should, they'll have no trouble closing the case thinking they found their man, even if he is a corpse. It almost feels strange to be so close to the end of this journey. Feeling a bit of nostalgia, I told Paul to meet me at the Great Dead Oak, where I met that witch queen all those years ago as a little girl, when this all began. Perhaps a note would help. As I continued to read on, the truth became crystal clear to me. Constance Hatchaway very well may have been one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. I slowly moved through the years, entry by entry, watching her set up every chance encounter, every mysterious disappearance and ailment, like a set of dominoes, climbing further and further up the social ladder. What's more, I quickly found that George Hightower was not Constance's third husband, but rather her fifth, having operated under the fake surname of Kavanaugh in San Francisco between 1871 and 1872. By the time I had finished reading the diary cover to cover, she was responsible for the deaths of at least 13 people, including Paul Geller, Leota Zarkov, and both George and Sarah Hightower. Slowly, the true face of Constance Hatchaway took form in these pages. A nobody, a ghost, born into poverty, the daughter of the town drunk, desperate to find some way to escape her circumstances. Growing up in the shadow of the Gracie estate, looking in on the lavish decadence they lived in, that should have been hers. For the longest time, I kept seeing references in her writings to what we deserved by right and our stolen fortune, my mind brimmed with questions. Who in her family did the Gracies wrong? Surely it couldn't have been her father, Gabriel Hatchaway. What records I could find portrayed him as a chronic alcoholic, born the bastard son of a French sex worker in 1808. He lived a life of squalor and abuse and died in the gutter in 1859. Her mother was said to have been a quiet woman that died of consumption in 1862. The only other family I could find was an older brother, Nicholas, who was said to have died a young soldier of the Confederacy in the Battle of Cedar Creek. 
I combed through the pages looking for something, anything that might identify the missing Hatchaway link. Finally, I found it. May the 29th, 1876. The day I've waited years for has at last arrived. I finally made it into George's study. He had left town for the day on a case and wasn't expected back until quite late. After a few silly excuses to the footman, I made my way down the corridor silently so as not to alert any of the other staff or that wretched gypsy to my presence. Once inside, I crept to the bookcases and began my search. It didn't take long before I had at last found it. The private memoir of Yale Gracie, just as foretold. I scrambled through the pages until I found what I was looking for. November 11th, 1807. The final piece of evidence of the Gracie's crimes against my kin. There, in detail, Gracie described the night that he, along with that hag Leota's father, killed my grandfather and took away from us any chance of prosperity, any chance of us Hatchaways being treated as more than the dirt on their boots. Well, if they could see me now in this monument to his treachery, soon, very soon, I'll crawl into his grandson's marriage bed and take all I am owed. In his writings, Gracie spoke of the dark magic Desponia taught my grandfather and of his misplaced head. Before I had a chance to read the map revealing its location, I heard someone coming. Acting quickly, I tore the page, hid it in my pocket, and made haste to the door. Naturally, it was Leota, sniffing around like always. The time may be coming that I need to remove her from my path, but that's a problem for another day. Once it got dark, I returned to the grounds and followed the map to my grandfather's final resting place. It felt like I shoveled for hours, but at last, I found it tied and chained inside an old leather hat box. Tonight, if the legend is true, Jefferson Hatchaway will rise again as a spirit of vengeance to curse the Gracies and the Hightowers to an eternity of suffering. I love a ghost story as much as anyone. I think you know that by now. But I've never been one to actually believe in ghosts. We love to hear stories that allow us, if just for a moment, to believe in a reality that's more than a mundane series of coincidences. It's a fantastical concept, and maybe that's why my editor kept shutting my article on it down. Maybe it's because I later found out that our new site is a subsidiary of the Hightower Group. 
But there are things I've found on this journey that I cannot ignore. Maybe it's all true. The spells, ghosts, all of it. If the hate of one person can wipe an entire family from existence, what else can it do? Can it reach past the veil of this world into regions beyond? Can that side reach back? On nights when I'm feeling particularly restless, I drive up to the mansion to clear my head. I can never tell if it's the moon or just my mind playing tricks on me, but sometimes, on clear nights when the wind blows just right, I swear I can see lights coming from the windows of the house. Perhaps there is something or someone still in there, lingering between this world and the next, watching and waiting to be found. We hope you've enjoyed Grim. Our cast this episode included the voice talents of Skipper Melody as Leota Zarkov, Lizzie Potter as Martha Gracie, Shanna Stoker as Katie Riley, Brayson Lamb as Harrison Hightower III, Tyler Yaney as Wally Ryman, Mary Laidlaw as Molly Anderson, Josh Lakaitis as Ambrose Harper, and Jessica Gardner as Constance Hatchaway. Brennan Betterly, producer. Tyler Yaney, associate producer. Original score by Aaron Daniel Jacob. Grimm is a non-profit, unofficial, haunted mansion fiction written by Mason Betterly and inspired by stories, concepts, and actual historical events. It is not in any way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company, nor does it reflect the company's views. 